Well, last week we introduced the doctrine, the reality, or really better, we introduced the living subject of the Holy Trinity. Christians believe, we said, that there is one God who exists in three persons. Now, even right here, right, an astute listener will note that Christians never say that we believe in one God who exists as three people. You won't find that. We don't believe in one God who exists as three people. We believe in one God who exists in three persons. And so that tells you right away, persons is a term of art here. It's not being used the same way you might speak of one another as persons. So Christians believe there is one God who exists in three persons, and that those three persons, in their communion, their communion of light and love, they just are the one God. And it is the destiny of the redeemed to see and to love and enjoy right, and in delight and in wonder to worship this God. Notice, to worship this God not through word or sacrament, not through any means that are created, through no created instruments, not even faith, but to worship this God face to face, by sight, in glory. That's the destiny of the redeemed. A people in everlasting communion with the triune God himself, in a perfected, unbreakable bond of union. A bond of fellowship with the Father through his Son, Jesus Christ, in the splendor of the Spirit. Now, this God, as Holy Trinity, cannot be read off the face of nature. Creation might show the glory of God, as Psalm 19 has it. Or creation might reveal God's eternal power and divine nature, as Romans 1 has it. But no one sees the Trinity by reading it off the face of nature. One knows from creation that God exists. And one knows a number of other features about this God. His nature, his wisdom, his power, for example. They can be deduced or they are clearly seen in in creation. But neither the creation nor our reasoning from the creation discloses the ultimate mystery. Namely, that God is triune, existing as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. For this, something beyond what is revealed in nature is necessary. Namely, special revelation, what we call special revelation, redemptive revelation. What is finally and fully unveiled in Jesus Christ and the coming of the new covenant. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus says this. He says, all things have been handed over to me by my father and no one knows the son except the father. And no one knows the father except the son. And anyone to whom the son chooses to reveal him. So the father is not known As Father, 
Yes, you can, you can know there's a creator. You can know God. But you can't know the Father as Father except by the Son in the bond of the Holy Spirit. The Son, Jesus says, can reveal the Father if he so chooses. And that's exactly what's occurred in the incarnate life of Jesus. Right? Jesus stands among us and he says this, Whoever has seen me has now seen the Father. When you see the stars and the sun and the moon, you don't see the Father. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Or as John puts it in his gospel, no one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side, but he, Christ, has made him known. And so it's revelation in Jesus Christ alone. Right? This and this alone is the way to the Trinity. To what Fred Sanders has called the happy land of the Trinity. The land above all worlds. The land above all empires. Above all revolutions. Above all convulsion. Above all cultural turmoil. The land where God dwells in everlasting blessedness and serenity as God. The happy land of the Trinity. To, to see what I'm trying to get at here, we, we can put it this way. We need to know God as he is for us. As he is for us in Jesus Christ. Before we can know God as he is in himself. As Father, Son, and Spirit. So I'll make three points this morning. They're there on the back of your bulletin, page five in that outline. The first point will be God is God for us, then God in Himself, and then God centeredness. So first we want to look at God for us, God for you. Now this this is a vast topic. And we're not going to do anything too ambitious. I want to focus here on something narrow. And and maybe we can put it in the form of a question. Namely, given what God has done in Christ for our redemption, what are the implications of that for the being of God? Now, this is an acute problem that many are not really attuned to, Because we take so much for granted. We take stuff for granted that the early Christians could not have taken for granted. And when we talk about the Trinity, even though it's often viewed this way, the Trinity is not, it's not some speculative, abstract, highly philosophical development that the later church came up with in isolation from Scripture. The Trinity is what you get when you reflect on the fact that the Son and the Spirit have been sent into the world to save sinners. Right? That's it. The Trinity is what you get when you reflect on the fact that the Father has sent the Son and sent the Spirit into the world to save sinners. It's the startling, shocking explosion of Jesus Christ that drives the church into the Trinitarian mystery. Jesus of Nazareth cracks open, if you will, Jewish monotheism. And he sends the disciples and he sends the early church really, really, forcing the early church to ask primal questions about who he is 
and then about just who God must be to be the one who sent this Jesus. The scandal and the shock of this is largely lost on us because we are the inheritors of the fruits of all of this reflection. But if you read the history of the earliest church, the first few decades and the first few centuries, you will find there an incredibly messy phenomenon. Right? You will find all kinds of diversity, all kinds of strange, wild, contradictory teachings about Christ and God. Right? There seems to be this endless well. Right? And the church is trying to sort and sift this out because Jesus has exploded on the scene. So just try and put yourself in the position of the earliest disciples, especially those that were Jews. This Jesus comes. He's teaching. He works miracles. He makes repeated divine claims for himself. Then he's raised from the dead. And later he pours out the Spirit. And so from the very beginning, he's worshipped. And he's confessed as God. The sheer force of his person and his work ensure this. In fact, demand this. And yet, 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 this is a crisis of quite some magnitude. If you're a Jewish monotheist who believes that the Lord your God is one, then worshiping Jesus either makes you a polytheist... You worship two gods now. Or it makes you an idolater. You worship a human being. It's rare that we have felt the force of this in our circles. We just think, oh, it's pretty obvious. Everybody should be worshiping Jesus. Now, the church is confronted with this reality. And he, somehow, must become part of or be integrated into the very identity of Yahweh. This, beloved, is no easy and obvious task. You need some moral imagination, some historical imagination to understand what you have inherited. You can imagine how traumatic this would be for first century monotheists. It's easy for us. We've got 500 years or 2,000 years of perspective. We just think, well, it's all right there in the Bible. I don't know what the big deal was. Seems sort of inevitable that they'd end up with what we've got. How ridiculous. How impossible this would appear to many. We have to worship this guy? This person? And worship Yahweh? How novel and heretical and strange. Right? The Jews think it's strange till this day. So do the Muslims. So do the Unitarians. So do the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons. And yet, one has stood in the midst of us, in the midst of Israel, and said, I and the Father are one. Before Abraham was, I am. And that one has been raised. That one has poured out the Spirit. And thus, in narrating the life of this one, In tracing his story, the church realizes that she cannot end even with his long, ancient, human genealogy. She can't trace the story back to David, or merely to Abraham, or even all the way back to Adam. This one was, as he claims, sent 
by the Father. And even here, you have to purify your use of the word. If I send you to the store, then there's distance between us and there's time. What does it mean to say the Son was sent by the Father? Was he not here before that? Where was he? Is he does he go away from the Father? Every one of these terms requires cognitive repentance and purification if we're going to use them right and think and confess God correctly. He is sent, meaning he's made present in a new manner, a new way of being present. This one, the church said, is sent. He comes forth, yes, from the womb of Mary, but also from some other place. And so they confessed controversially, and by the way, this is controversial to today in many circles, that this Jesus of Nazareth is pre-existent. His existence does not start in the Advent season or around Christmas time or in the womb of Mary. His story begins like this, John says. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Right? The writer of the book of Hebrews would describe him as being the very radiance of the glory of God. It was encountering this one then that the church realized that they were face to face. They did not anticipate this. They did not manufacture this. They were face to face with what, as 1 John says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we looked upon, which we touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest. We've seen it. We testify to it. We proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father has been made manifest to us, the apostle says. In other words, they're saying, look, we didn't go into some room and and, and try to come up with some complicated, convoluted doctrine. We saw this, touched it, tasted it, and handled it, and we're telling you what we saw. And why are we writing to you? John, John says in that same passage, so that with us you can have fellowship with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And so now, against their will, Against their will, without choosing this path, the early church is knee-deep in what would later be called Trinitarian theology. And over the next 300 years, really 2,000 years, the process is still ongoing, they would refine, and they would argue, and they would fight with heretics, and they would hammer out terminology. They would... They would try to come to terms with the implications of what they saw and what they handled in Jesus Christ. Namely, that behind God with us, behind what we encounter in Jesus of Nazareth, is the very being, the very glory of God himself. We saw that in the New Testament lesson. It is the glory of God which is shining in the face of Jesus Christ. And that glory is the infinite, eternal life of God himself as Father, Son, and Spirit dwelling above all worlds in the happy land of the Trinity. And that brings me to the second point, God in himself. So Jesus comes. He explodes. He cracks Jewish monotheism open. He is, we saw... Eternal Son, Son of one called Father. And thus the church came to see 
that the Father is called Father. It's really important to grasp this, I think. The Father is called Father first and foremost for Trinitarian reasons. The Father is called Father first and foremost for Trinitarian reasons. Creation does not make him Father. Not because he becomes our Father in the Gospel. That's not the first reason you call God Father. It's grand and it's exalted. But the Father is called Father because he has always been Father of the Son. Gregory of Nyssa, in the 4th century, says the Son is of the Father, and the Father is never without the Son. For it is impossible, Gregory says, that glory should be without its radiance, just as it's impossible that the lamp should be without its brightness. And in the same way, then, Jesus' Son, first and foremost for Trinitarian reasons, not because he makes us sons, Grand as that is. But because he has always been the son of the father. The radiance of the glory of God has always shined in its brilliance. Now, less clearly and a little more slowly, the church came to see that this father-son bond of fellowship was sustained by the communion of the Holy Spirit. And thus then, before creation, before redemption... Before the foundation of the world, right, this God, this triune communion existed. This was, this is, the happy land of the Trinity. And it's true, this divine life transcends us. It remains a mystery to us. It's beyond our control. It's certainly beyond our full comprehension. Yet we can say a good deal about it from Scripture. You heard a bunch of it in the Gospel lesson from John 17, where Jesus says, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. The Father and the Son shared a glory before the world existed. That glory is not enhanced by the creation of the world, or the redemption of the world, or the creation and redemption of a million worlds. There is an eternal sharing of glory between the Father and the Son. Jesus speaks there also of an eternal sharing of love between the Father and the Son before the foundation of the world. One New Testament scholar said, Nothing shines more radiantly in the New Testament than the eternal love of the Father for the Son. It's the radiant center of things. And so intimate is this communion between the Father and the Son that Jesus describes it by saying, I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. The persons are distinct, and yet they're interior to each other. They mutually indwell one another. So this is a communion of the most intimate kind, a communion of blessedness, love, glory, light, and life, a dynamic communion. You should not think of the Trinity as static. It's a dynamic communion of mutual self-giving and delight between the Father and the Son in the Holy Spirit. And this is why the church following Scripture has come to realize that behind Revelation, that behind the creation itself, we are pointed 
to this eternal communion, this eternal conversation, if you will, that is the triune God. Chesterton gets at this wonderfully when he writes, The meanest man in gray fields gone, behind the set of sun, heareth between star and other star, through the door of the darkness fallen ajar, the counsel, eldest of things that are, the talk of the three in one. This is the most basic, the most primitive reality. Not any created thing, this communion of God in the happy land of the Trinity. And thus, Athanasius, famous 4th century father, said, It is more pious and more accurate to signify God from the Son and to call him Father than to name him from his works and call him Creator. You want to get the heart of how important the Trinity is, you can get it right there. Look, it is more pious. There's more devotion involved. And it is more accurate to call God Father in relation to the Son than to name God from his works and call him creator. Father is the better term. Put simply, God is father before he is creator or redeemer. God is essentially father, eternally father. He has to be father, if you will. He is never without the son or the spirit. But creator, he could have chosen not to create. That's something which comes later. It comes by free choice. It's not of necessity. It is more pious and it is more accurate to call God Father in relation to the Son than to look at the world and say God is the creator. They're both accurate, of course, and they're both pious, but one is more pious and more accurate. And thus the church confesses in her creed, I believe in one God, the Father. That's the first thing she says. The Father Almighty then maker of heaven and earth. The order is important. Father first, then creator. Eternally father. Necessarily father. Freely creator. Trinity precedes creation. The happy land of the Trinity is above and before all worlds. This, beloved, though we grasp but the outskirts of it, this is what we mean when we speak of the Holy Trinity. This is the fount of the church's wonder. It's an ineffable and a sublime mystery. Finally then, God-centeredness. What might be some of the big picture, low-hanging fruit for us to grasp once we see that God is for us so that we might come to see and know God in himself? Right? That's the takeaway here. Right, God is for you so that you might come to know God as he is in himself. Well, this should stir in us a deep God-centeredness. A being ravished by the Holy Trinity above all other detachments. All other attachments. In such a way that you're, you're detached from them. You're severed to some extent. They look relativized. They shrink down because you're ravaged by the vision of the triune God. It's not that these other things are unimportant. But they are relativized by this passion. So to be God-centered is to be Trinity-centered. 
And this is a recognition then that God is not to be correlated to our families or to our projects or to our politics or to our country or to our ministries or to our Christian undertakings. This God towers majestically, infinitely above all things. He alone, without competitors, is the object of our passion, our love, our adoration, our praise, and our worship. He is not to be correlated to our projects. Thus, you're marked. Right? We're marked for and journeying toward and destined to arrive in the happy land of the Trinity. The whole point of everything, the whole point of the revelation and the work of God in Christ is, as, as Peter says in his first epistle, to bring you to God. Father, Son, and Spirit. He is the end. He is the telos. He is the goal. Right? This then, once one sees this, one realizes the Trinity is the fountain. The fountain from which the waters of salvation flow. The Trinity is the wealth, right, which funds the riches that are yours in Jesus Christ. Another way to to put what I'm trying to get at here is this. Salvation is not a gift which is detachable from God himself. Salvation is not a gift which is detachable from God. Like you could get it and say, thank you, God, for saving me. I really appreciate that. Now I'm going to try and serve you. What things should I do? Salvation is participation in the very life of God. It is sharing in the mutual love of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That is eternal life. We heard that in the gospel lesson. Salvation is not a gift which is detachable from the life of God. Or in the Old Testament lesson, explicitly we're told, right? Explicitly in Isaiah, God is your salvation. Or to put this in Christian terms, right? The Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, not only affect your salvation or secure your salvation, they are your salvation. And that's a different thing than a lot of what happens. Here's Isaiah. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. And what's the result of this? Isaiah goes on to say it. It's a lovely, lovely little passage in Isaiah 12 there. I commend it to you. He says this, with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. You will drink. You're going to drink with joy the refreshing life of the Trinity itself because the Trinity is your salvation. I think of the scene in Revelation, at the end of the book of Revelation, where the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are enthroned, and from the throne flows the life-giving, healing water of the Holy Spirit. Right? It's a picture of the saints' everlasting and eternal communion in glory with the Holy Trinity. The gospel, then, the gospel, then, is called in Scripture the gospel of God. God is the origin. He's the substance He's the goal of the gospel. As I said last week, there's a lot in this generation about gospel-centered this and gospel-centered that and gospel-centered churches. I would prefer that we could speak about God-centered churches. Right? Paul calls the gospel in 1 Timothy, listen to this, he calls it the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. 
Now, we're pretty good at seeing the importance of the gospel of God. We are much weaker at seeing the importance of the God of the gospel. And the cure for this is recognizing that the gospel directs us to something. I mentioned this last week, I think. The gospel directs us to something. It directs us to the only thing that is greater than the gospel. Namely, the life of the triune God. God's life is better than the gospel. It should not be correlated to the gospel or collapsed into the gospel. God's life is better than the gospel. The salvation of sinners is a great affair. It is a wondrous thing. But the life of God is greater, much, much greater. In fact, Jonathan Edwards thought that seeing how great God and the things of God are in themselves, apart from us, was the sign of genuine conversion. It's a sign of genuinely being converted, turned outside of yourself to see God and his glory apart from ourselves as great. Here's another way to put this. The work of Jesus, our Savior, in his incarnation, in his life, in his death, in his resurrection, his saving work for sinners. That is a thing of astonishing wonder. It is a cause for eternal praise. Though it adds nothing to the being of the Trinity. But his person, Christ being the eternal Son of the Father, the second person of the Trinity, his being that one, His being the image of the invisible God, the radiance of the Father's glory. His person is infinitely greater than his work. I'm not sure we grasp this. It may be that the proportion of Scripture tricks us, right? There's a lot of of material in Scripture about what Jesus has done for us. There might not be quite as much about who he is, but there's plenty about who he is. But there is no doubt that who he is is greater than what he did. Great as what he did is. Or put it another way, the being of God is greater than the acts of God. Right? Right? The triune God is infinitely greater than parting the Red Sea or the Exodus. The Exodus is great. But God's life is greater. God's life is greater than the gospel. This is the God-centeredness Produced by contemplating the Trinity. And it will take a lifetime and it will take eternity for it to shape and mold us. This is what it means for us to think from a center that is outside of ourselves. To recognize that neither we nor our projects are, not even our salvation, is the center of things. This is a Trinitarian displacement of self. Even Christian selves. Fred Sanders, who I've quoted a couple times, says, We ought to take God so seriously that we consider him more interesting than ourselves. We ought to take God so seriously that we consider him more interesting than ourselves. And the reason for this is, of course, that he is more interesting than we are. (laughs) Infinitely so. So we ought to be in line with that truth, right? Indeed, the one who is to be our great preoccupation is our life and is our salvation. So glory be to the Trinity, to the God who is for us in Christ, that we might delight in him as he is in himself. Amen.